What's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. society there is a big desire for greatness. I think most of us desire greatness in some capacity or another and uh, we clearly see this in sports. Uh, when you're playing a sport like football or basketball or baseball or, or even something uh, like ping pong, uh, do you want to be greater than your opponent or do you want your opponent to be greater than you? You know, when you watch sports like a a football or baseball or basketball, when you watch the teams that you support, for most of you here, like the Rockets or the Astros or the Texans, you know, do you want your team to be greater than the other team or do you want the other team to be greater than your team? You know, I've never met anyone who says, you know, I hope I am the worst person here and that everyone beats me. You know, I want to come in dead last, or or I hope my team gets destroyed and loses every game. You know, people don't make those comments because we want to be great personally, and we want those things that we support and those teams that we support to be great as well. Now, many of us are probably at the stage in life where, you know, we more support people who play sports than actually play them personally ourselves, but sports are not the only area of life where we want greatness or want to see greatness. For many of us, we want to be great in our career. You know, we want to climb the corporate ladder, get the great positions of authority and influence, and maybe most importantly for some, pay. You know, most of us want to be great in our relationships. We want to be great spouses. We want to be great parents. We want to be great children. We want to be great friends. Most of us want to be great in our reputation. You know, we want people to see us and see us as someone who is great. For those of you who are in school, or maybe you look back to the time that you were in school, you probably wanted to be great in, in academics, that you wanted to be that person who got the, the best grades in your class. Some of us even want to be great in our hobbies. Maybe it's playing the guitar, doing photography, playing golf, who knows what it is, but, but there's a desire to be great in those things. Now, there's nothing wrong with being great. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be great as long as we connect greatness to the right things and define greatness in the right way. You see, there are two main opposing views when it comes to greatness. There's the world's view and the world's definition of what greatness is. And then there is God's view and God's definition of what greatness is. So your desire to be great your pursuit of greatness, and maybe even your achieval of greatness is either going to be good or bad in God's eyes, depending on what your view, your definition, and what you connect greatness to. If you have a worldly view, a worldly definition, and a worldly connection to what greatness is, well then what God's going to see in your pursuit, and your desire, and your achieval of that greatness is something that's bad. 
But, but if your you know, view of greatness is godly, if your pursuit is godly, then what God looks to that is going to be good. Now, a problem that we often have is our desire, our pursuit, our achieval of greatness is oftentimes based on a worldly definition, a worldly view, a worldly connection to greatness, and not a godly one. And the result is we end up pursuing the wrong type of greatness in the wrong way for the wrong reasons. And this is something that we see with Jesus's disciples. You know, throughout the three years of time that they had with Jesus, we see that they had a very worldly view, a worldly definition, a worldly connection to what greatness is. You know, one of the things that these disciples regularly disputed among themselves was which one of them was the greatest presently, and also who would be the greatest when Jesus established his kingdom. So the disciples want to be great. They think they're great. They're trying to prove to one another that they're great. But their concept of greatness is a worldly one, not a godly one. Now, the reason I bring all this up is because as we come now to John chapter 13, Jesus is going to reveal something very important to the disciples about what godly greatness actually looks like, what it is, how you should define it. Now, remember last week we saw Jesus share his final message. Actually, it wasn't last week, it was the week before because last week was Resurrection Sunday. But at the end of John chapter 12, Jesus shares his final message publicly. And now we have five chapters where John takes us to this private time that Jesus has with his disciples where he shares these intimate private things with them. And as we come to chapter 13, we have it all starting in the upper room as the disciples and Jesus gather together to partake of the Passover meal with one another. Now, Luke's gospel tells us something about the disciples, and as they got to the Passover meal, something that they were disputing among one another. We're told this in Luke chapter 22, verse 24. Now, there was also a dispute among them as to which of them would be considered the greatest. So as Jesus gathers with his disciples in the upper room to partake of Passover, The disciples are there. You would think that the focus would be Passover. The focus would be remembering what God did to deliver them from Egypt. But nope, that's not what they're discussing. They're discussing which one of them is the greatest. Now, there are two main problems with their dispute about who's the greatest. The first main problem is that the disciples' dispute over greatness was a worldly greatness. So here you have Jesus' disciples disputing among themselves as to who is the greatest, which is bad enough, but it's done from a worldly perspective, which is even worse. The second main problem is that the disciples think they are greater than they actually were. So they have a worldly greatness, but they also have this prideful, unrealistic view of themselves that they were greater than the rest of the disciples. And this perspective was based on a worldly view of greatness. Now, having a prideful, unrealistic view of your own greatness and thinking that you're greater than you actually are is something that most of us struggle with. I know I have struggled with that throughout my life. 
You know, former heavyweight boxing champion Muhammad Ali was often known for bragging, I'm the greatest. And he once said this, I'm not the greatest, I'm the double greatest. Not only do I knock him out, I pick the round. So Ali thought he was the greatest. But there's an interesting true story that he actually got on a plane to travel to Los Angeles. And just before takeoff, the stewardess walked by Ali and reminded him to fasten his seatbelts. Ali's response was, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And the stewardess quickly responded, Superman don't need no airplane either. And to that, Ali responded with fastening his seatbelt. So the disciples, you know, they have two big problems when it comes to greatness. First, they have a worldly greatness. And second, they have this prideful, unrealistic view of their own greatness from their worldly perspective. And they think that they're greater than they actually are. And both of these problems come out in this dispute there during the Feast of Passover in the upper room as they're about to gather and eat this feast together. So Jesus sees what the disciples are doing in the upper room. He recognizes that they don't know what true godly greatness is. And so he's going to take this moment to educate them about godly greatness. Now here at the beginning of John chapter 13, John's going to reveal three things about Jesus that help communicate what godly greatness is. First, John tells us what Jesus knows. Second, John tells us what Jesus does. And third, John tells us what Jesus teaches. What Jesus knows, what Jesus does, and what Jesus teaches all help communicate what godly greatness is. Now, I want to start actually a little out of order. I want to start with what Jesus does, even though John focuses first on what Jesus knows. And the reason for that is because once you realize what Jesus does, then what he knows becomes that much more significant and important. And you can grasp that knowledge in a different way because you've seen what he does. And so we're going to start with what he knows, um, what he does. Then we're going to look at what he knows in light of what he does. And then we're going to finish with what he teaches about what he does. And all of these things are to help us learn what godly greatness is. And hopefully, you know, we can leave with understanding what is true godly greatness, that we would desire that, we pursue that, and more importantly, that we would actually do it in our lives. So let's start by looking at what Jesus does in verses 4 and 5 of John chapter 13. We're told Jesus rose from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin, began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Now, I want you to try and picture the scene that we have here. Jesus and his disciples are, they're in the upper room. They're eating the Passover meal together. And just before they started eating, remember the disciples are disputing among themselves as to which one of them was the greatest. And so they're eating of these things. And all of a sudden in the middle of this meal, Jesus stands up from the table probably walks away from the table, removes his outer garments and it just would have probably had his loincloth left. And then he takes a towel and he wraps that towel around his waist. 
And then he gets a basin and he fills it with water and he goes to each disciple and he starts to wash their feet with the water in the basin and dries it with the towel that's wrapped around his waist. Now, in order to understand the significance of what Jesus does here, you need to understand two things about washing feet in that culture. The first thing to understand about washing feet in that culture is the person who would normally wash someone's feet when they entered your home was the lowest servant in the house. As you could probably imagine, washing feet is kind of a disgusting job, not one that people would want, because in Jesus' day, people didn't wear shoes that fully covered their feet, they didn't have socks on, they wore sandals or they went barefoot, and they didn't walk on nice paved clean roads, they walked on dirty roads, the same roads that animals would walk on and poo on and pee on, and there would just be a lot of you know sewage and other disgusting things on these roads that people are barefoot walking or sandal walking and so your feet by the time you got to whatever destination you were going to would be quite disgusting and so if you were the person stuck with having to clean those feet that would not be a pleasant job no one wanted that job and that's why it was the lowest servant on the totem pole who got stuck with it because any servant above him would be like no I'm not doing it you're the lowest one you're doing this you have to clean people's feet So that's the first thing I want you to understand is in that culture, cleaning feet was usually done by the lowest servant because it was such a horrible and disgusting job. The second thing to understand about washing feet in that culture is if you wash someone's feet, it demonstrated that they, or that you, sorry, um, they were greater than you. So a master would never wash a servant's feet. A teacher would never wash a student's feet. And if you felt that you were greater than someone else, you wouldn't wash their feet. Why? Because in that culture, that would say, wait, you're greater than me. So if I feel like I'm greater than you, I'll never wash your feet because I'm greater than you. And people who are greater don't wash the feet of those who are lesser. Now, in that culture, a better understanding of um, a cultural significance of feet washing is I want you to picture this again. And first... I want you to understand that it's only Jesus and his disciples in the upper room, that there's no one else there. So there's no servant, no low on the totem pole servant to come and wash the feet of the disciples or of Jesus. Now, normally your feet would be washed right when you entered the house. But notice we're at the middle of the feast of Passover and all their feet are still dirty. And the reason they're still dirty It's because none of the disciples were willing to wash the feet of everybody else. Because in their mind, if they chose to wash the feet of the other disciples, it would show that they were not the greatest. Because in their cultural mindset, the foot washing demonstrated that the person whose feet you wash was greater than you. So as the disciples are disputing as to who is the greatest, none of them is willing to wash the feet of everyone else in the upper room, because in their mind, it would be a declaration that you are greater than me. Now, since it was just the disciples and Jesus, one of them should have washed Jesus' feet, because Jesus is clearly the greatest person in the room, and I think they all would have agreed that Jesus shouldn't wash their feet, but that they should wash Jesus' feet, because he's their master, he's their teacher in that culture, it would have been, yes, we should wash Jesus' feet, 
he in no way, shape, or form should be washing our feet. But notice none of them was willing to wash Jesus' feet. Why? Because if they start washing Jesus' feet, they now make themselves available and have to start washing the feet of the other disciples as well. And they didn't want to do something that would make them lesser than the rest of the disciples. So since none of the disciples are willing to wash anyone's feet, everybody's got dirty feet in the middle of this feast. And in the middle of the feast, Jesus does something that would have shocked his disciples. Gets up from the feast, takes off his outer garments, puts this towel around his waist. And just the attire that Jesus has on right now is the only person who would have that kind of attire was the lowest servant in the house who would have to have that horrible job of washing people's feet. And just watching Jesus unrobe and put this towel on would have been enough to be like, well, wait a second, what are you doing? This attire is only for the lowest servants possible, Jesus. What are you thinking? And then Jesus goes a step even further and takes that basin and fills it with water and starts washing the disciples' feet, something that only the lowest servant would do. Now, this would have been super uncomfortable for the disciples because of the cultural mindset they had that told them, Jesus should not be washing my feet. You see, they believed that Jesus was God. They believed He was the Messiah. So in their mind, Jesus would be the last person in the world who should wash their feet, because Jesus, in their mind, was the greatest person in the world. So He shouldn't have to wash anyone's feet. Everyone should be washing His feet. Now, for us today, it might be like the President of the United States or, or the Queen of England or, or, or someone that you think is very important and distinguished coming to your house and cleaning your dirty toilet and, and cleaning your, your bathroom. You know, for us in our culture, we would just be like, no way. You know, I just can't see someone in that distinguished role, someone who's in that distinguished position coming to my house and cleaning my toilet. That would just make me very un comfortable. And that's what, you know, it was for the disciples having the son of God wash their feet in that culture was something that would make them very, very uncomfortable. Well, Jesus, he starts washing feet and then he gets to Peter and Peter shares something that I'm sure all the disciples were thinking as well. Notice what Peter says when Jesus gets to him in verses six through eight. Then Jesus came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing, you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. I want you to note here, Peter would have been absolutely fine with any of the disciples in that room washing his feet because he thought he was greater than all of them and that he deserved them to wash his feet. So if they were washing his feet, he just put them out there and he would expect it of them because he feels he's greater than them. But Peter knows something very important. Jesus is much, much greater than Peter is. And so he asked Jesus this question, Lord, are you washing my feet? With this question, Peter's saying, Jesus, you shouldn't be washing my feet because you are much greater than I am. Well, Jesus responds by saying, what I'm doing, you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter, just let me do it. I know you don't get it, but you're going to get it in a little bit. Well, well that's not enough for Peter. 
And so Peter responds with, you shall never wash my feet. Once again, Jesus, you're too great to be washing my feet. I'm not going to allow it. You're never washing these feet because you are great and great people don't wash the feet of those lesser than them. Peter wasn't about to wash the other disciples' feet because he thought he was greater than them. And there's no way he's going to let Jesus wash his feet because he knows Jesus is greater than Peter. Well, Jesus has some important words for Peter in verses 8-12. through Notice what he says. If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, You are not all clean. So Peter starts off saying, hey, you're never going to clean my feet. And then Jesus says something that kind of changes the perspective here of Peter. He says, hey, if I don't wash you, Peter, you have no part with me. And right when Peter hears those words, he quickly changes his view of Jesus washing his feet. And he goes from one extreme to the other. You're not touching my feet, Jesus, to not only my feet, but my hands and my head. If this means I have no part with you, Jesus, wash my whole body. I don't want anything to keep me from having a part with you. And if it's feet, then it can be hands and heads and everything. Give me a full bath, Jesus. I don't want to miss out at all on having a part with you. Well, Jesus says to Peter, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. What Jesus is sharing here is both a practical truth and also a spiritual truth. It's a practical truth because in that culture, before you partook of the Passover feast, you would take a bath in a thing called a mikvah. Here's an aerial picture of a mikvah in Jerusalem. There would have been many like this. As you can see, you have these steps that go down into this pool of water. Uh, And this was something at the feast time, there would be lots of them. You would go and you would bathe yourself in this before going to sacrifice at the altar before going and taking part, partaking of Passover. And so the disciples, they would have got, come to this mikvah. Each one of them would have been fully immersed into this water. And then they would have headed to the upper room to take the Passover with Jesus. So they're fully clean, except the journey from the mikvah to the upper room has to walk over dirty roads and sandals. And so the one part of their body that's no longer clean is now their feet. And so the practical truth that Jesus is teaching is that Peter didn't need a bath. He just had one. All he needs right now are his feet to be washed because that's the only thing on his body right now that's actually dirty. But Jesus is also sharing a spiritual truth. And the reason that we know that Jesus is sharing a spiritual truth here is because he says, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean and you are clean. But then notice what he says, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore, he said, you are not all clean. Jesus is saying, not all of you disciples are clean. And he's speaking of one that's not clean, Judas. Because he knows that Judas is going to betray him. And so he's saying, Judas, you're not clean, but all the rest of the disciples are clean. And we know now that Jesus is speaking of a spiritual truth, not a practical truth. Because guess what? 
Judas would have washed in the mikvah, just like the rest of the disciples. And Judas got his feet cleaned by Jesus, just like the rest of the disciples. So Judas is no different in a cleanly way from a practical standpoint, but he's very different in his cleanliness from a spiritual standpoint. So Jesus is speaking about being spiritually clean. You see, all the disciples except for Judas have placed their trust in who Jesus is. They place their trust that he is God, that he's the Messiah. And so they are clean because of their trust in Jesus. But Judas has yet to do that. Sadly, Judas is never going to do that. So they're saved, but there's still times that they get spiritually dirty in their contact with the world and their choice to sin. And so they didn't need another full bath spiritually. They don't need to be saved all over again spiritually. They just need that sin that they've committed to be cleaned in their life. And this is an important spiritual lesson for us to understand. When you and I put our trust in Jesus, we are completely cleansed from our sins. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far he removes our transgressions from us. 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us, that Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So the day that you put your trust in Jesus, guess what? You are now a new creation. That old life, the old sinful you that lived in that sinful way, guess what? That's no longer the way you are in the eyes of God. You are now forgiven. You are now a new creation. But the reality is, once we put our trust in Jesus and we become that new creation, we don't become sinless creations. We still continue to sin. Now, we don't like it, we want to stop it, but the reality is it still happens. And when it happens, we don't need to get saved all over again because it's a one-time deal. You only need to be saved once. Well, well, then what happens? Well, we still need that sin that's been committed to be clean. I'm cleansed. I've taken that spiritual bath of being fully saved, but yet there's still, when I sin, have this part of me that needs a cleansing. And that's why Jesus tells us how to deal with that. When you sin, you don't need to uh, come and get saved. You need to come with confession for Jesus to deal with it. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so that's what we do. Hey, I got, a little, I got something that's made me spiritually dirty, and so I bring it to Jesus, I confess it, and He cleans me up. Now, another thing that Jesus is teaching Peter is that spiritual cleansing and closeness to him go hand in hand. You know what he says, hey, you'll have no part with me if I don't do this for you. You know, there's a reality that, you know what, we're saved. And when we put our trust in Jesus, that happens. And that's how we actually get close to Jesus. That's how we start that relationship with Jesus. But once you have the relationship, there's something that can hinder it. And what hinders it is sin. And the reason it hinders it is if we ignore it, we don't deal with it properly, we just let it continue in our life, we don't confess it, we don't repent of it, and that sin then is a hindrance to our relationship with Jesus. So cleansing and closeness go hand in hand. You want to stay close? Confess the sin. Deal with those sin and let that relationship be restored between you and Jesus. So Jesus washes the feet of all his disciples, and what he does just goes completely against the disciples' view of what greatness is. Well, now that we've looked at what Jesus does, we're going to look at what he knows in light 
of what he does in verses 1 through 3. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when the, Jesus knew that his hour had come that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going to God. So here John tells us three important things that Jesus knew. And I want us to look at these three things uh, that Jesus knew in light of what we just saw that Jesus did in washing the disciples' feet. The first thing we're told that Jesus knew is that he knew his hour had come that he should depart from this world to the Father. Now we've been seeing this to the last couple chapters, Jesus knowing that his hour is here and now literally he is hours away from this horrible beating, this horrible crucifixion, mocking, all these, you know, the suffering that he's about to endure. He is fully aware of the fact that that is just a few hours from this time right now. And notice that even with that knowledge, he's not focused on himself. He's not focused on all that he's about to endure. Instead, his focus is on his disciples. His focus is trying to help them grow. His focus is on teaching them a lesson about what it means to truly be great in the eyes of God. Now, I want you to think about something. If you knew you were about to suffer horribly, the worst kind of suffering that's possible, the kind of suffering that Jesus went through, you know, where would your focus be? What would you be thinking about? Most of us would probably be focused on ourselves, focused on what we're about to endure, focused on trying to prepare ourselves for it, and everything else and everybody else would kind of just be a distraction to us that we wouldn't want to think about. But that's not Jesus. He's focused on the disciples and trying to prepare them for his departure. And notice that John tells us the reason why. Why is it that Jesus isn't self-focused, but instead focused on the disciples? We're told, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The reason why Jesus' focus is on his disciples is because of his great love for them. He wants to love them to the end. I'm going to love you guys all the way until I get on that cross and I give my life. I want to do as much as I can before I'm separated from you to invest in you, to help you to grow, to teach you guys for when my departure comes that you'll be more ready for it. Now, interesting, at the same time that Jesus was focused on his disciples, his disciples were focused on themselves, arguing about which one of them was the greatest. It was all about them. But for Jesus, it wasn't about him at all. His focus was on others. Jesus showed them that godly greatness thinks about others more than yourself. And this is what the disciples missed. They think, well, if you're great, you think about yourself and you brag about how great you are. And Jesus saying, no, no, godly greatness is opposite. It thinks about others more than it thinks about yourself. We see this truth many times in Scripture. One of those times is in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 8. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, 
who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. If you want to have godly greatness, then humble yourself and esteem others as better than yourself like Jesus did. F.B. Meyer wrote this, I used to think that God's gifts were on shelves one above the other, and that the taller we grew in Christian character, the easier we could reach them. I now find that God's gifts are on shelves one beneath the other. It's not a question of growing taller, but stooping lower, that we have to go down, always down, to get His best gifts. I love that quote. I think it's so true. You really want to grow, you have to humble yourself before the Lord. The second thing we're told that Jesus knew is the devil already having put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus was fully aware and knowledgeable of the fact that Judas was going to betray him. He knew what was going on in Judas's heart at the very moment that Satan was working in there. I want you to think about something. Even though Jesus knew this, he still washed Judas' feet. If you were in that room, you knew someone was going to betray you. You knew someone was going to do something that horrible to you. Someone that you spent three years of your life with. Would you want to wash their feet? Maybe you think, yeah, with boiling water. But I mean, would you want to do what Jesus did? Show the equal amount of love to Judas as he does to the rest of the disciples. See, Jesus doesn't respond like we do. He humbles himself, he loves, and he serves Judas, the betrayer, in the same way he serves the rest of the disciples there in the upper room. Jesus met the great injury and the supreme disloyalty of Judas with great humility and supreme love. And in doing so, Jesus revealed that our godly greatness loves and serves even our enemies. This is a concept that is so foreign to most of us. Like, yeah, the world tells us, love those who love you, hate those who hate you. But that's not what Jesus tells us. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 through 44, you have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Even at that time, the religious leaders were saying, hey, you can love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. Jesus is saying, no, no, no. I want you to love your enemies. I want you to do good for your enemies. I want you to pray for your enemies. I want you to bless your enemies. And Jesus is the perfect example of that because it's exactly what he did for others. That's what godly greatness does. The third thing we're told that Jesus knew is Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going to God. Notice here that Jesus is fully aware of what he possessed, that all things are in his hands from the Father. He has full power. He was fully aware of who he was, where he came from. He came from God. But he was also fully aware of where he was going. He was going to go back to God. So he knew of his power, he knew of his glory, he knew just how great he was as God. And notice that knowledge of how great he was didn't cause him to be filled with pride, 
as it probably would have for most of us. Instead, Jesus was filled with humility and he served those inferior to him. You know, we are often like the disciples. We feel like we're too great or too distinguished or too important for those humble things or those menial tasks. And if someone asked us to do something we felt was beneath us, we might ask the question, do you know who I am? Maybe you've done that in your life. The thought being, well, obviously you don't know who I am because if you knew how great and how important I was, you wouldn't be asking me to do this menial task. You wouldn't be asking me to do this unimportant thing. But Jesus wasn't like that. He knew he was Lord of all, and yet he humbled himself and washed his disciples' feet. And in doing so, revealed that godly greatness is displayed in humility. James chapter 4, verse 10 says, Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. You know, the world tells us, you want to be great? Then lift yourself up. Then think highly of yourself, and you'll be lifted up. And God says, no, you want to be lifted up? Humble yourself, and I will do the lifting up. F.F. Bruce wrote this, the form of God was not exchanged for a form of a servant. It was revealed in the form of a servant. In the washing of their feet, the disciples, though they did not understand it at the time, saw a rare unfolding of the authority and glory of the incarnate word and a rare declaration of the character of the Father himself. So we've seen what Jesus did. We've seen what Jesus knew in light of what he did. And now let's look at this great message that Jesus teaches about what he did in verses 12 through 17. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garment and sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord and you say, well, for so I am. If I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who sent greater than him who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So after Jesus finishes washing the feet of the disciples, putting his garment back on and sitting back at the table, he poses a very important question to the awestruck, uncomfortable disciples. And he says, do you know what I've done to you? Hey, you guys, do you, do you understand why I just did this? Why I washed your feet? Now, they don't know why, and so Jesus is going to tell them. He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. The reason that Jesus washes the disciples' feet was to give them a powerful example of what godly greatness looks like. You know, the disciples were disputing among themselves about who was the greatest, and because of that, they wouldn't wash each other's feet because they didn't want to be seen as less than the other disciples. And so Jesus washes all of their feet to show them that their view of greatness was worldly and not godly. They thought that humbling themselves 
and serving others took from their greatness because they had a worldly view of greatness, but Jesus showed them that humbling themselves and serving one another actually adds to their greatness in the eyes of God if you're viewing greatness from a godly perspective. Now notice what Jesus says. He says, I'm your teacher and Lord, and I washed your feet. And what I did, I did as an example to you that you would do as I have done for you. Well, why? Because a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who sent greater than him who sent him. Jesus is the master. The disciples are the servant. Jesus is the sender. The disciples are the sent ones. So Jesus is making very clear, I'm the great one here. And if I, the greatest, have done these things, how much more do you guys need to do it? If I do this for you, you better be doing this for one another. So Jesus has shared this important lesson on greatness, and he finishes the lesson with a great challenge. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Guys, just having a knowledge of what godly greatness is, isn't good enough. You got to actually put it into practice. Blessed are you if you do it, not just know it. You need to be willing to humble yourself and serve others. You know, there was a man who was quite sick. He had a rare disease. He goes into the doctor to get all sorts of tests. And about a week later, those tests now have results. And he and his wife come into the hospital to find out what the results were. And the doctor asks to see the wife privately in another room. And he sits her down and he tells her that there's good news and bad news. The bad news is that your husband has a very rare life-threatening disease. The good news, it is possible to manage the negative effects of the disease, but in order for that to happen, you are going to have to do some difficult things every day for your husband. Your husband's going to need a completely new diet of very healthy foods, and they're going to have to be smaller portions. So you're going to need to cook for him at least five meals a day. He's not going to be capable of feeding himself, so you're going to have to feed him those meals. Your husband's going to also need to have a very clean environment, you're going to have to clean his sheets and his pillows every day. You're going to have to do a deep cleaning on the house each day. And your husband's muscles will also need to be stimulated each day. So he's going to need an hour-long massage that you're going to need to learn how to properly do and then implement each day. But if you do these things, your husband can have a long life. If you don't do these things, well, your husband will die. The wife goes back into the room with her husband. Her husband asks, what did the doctor say? She said, it's bad news. The doctor said you're going to die. You know, oftentimes we're like this wife. We know what needs to be done, but we're not willing to do it. Because it's so difficult, because it's so hard, because serving others and humbling ourselves is not something that we like. And so we hear from God, this is what you should do. And our response is, no, I'm not going to do that. Alexander McLaren wrote this. There are too many of us who profess to be quite willing to trust in Jesus as the cleanser of our souls who are not nearly so willing to accept his example as the pattern for our lives. You know, we should do both. It shouldn't just be, hey, I trust Jesus to save me, but I'm not going to follow the example that he lays out for me. We need to be those who follow and do what Jesus did before us. Now, Jesus also shares a great encouragement 
If we're willing to put this into practice, we're willing to humble ourselves, we're willing to serve others. Notice he says, blessed are you if you do this. There is a blessing from God when we truly live out godly greatness through humility, through service of others, that God says, I'm going to bless you for that. And we think that we're missing out. And this is why we need to understand this, because the world says, why would you do that? Why would you humble yourself? Why would you serve others? I mean, that's not the way to get ahead in life. What are you thinking? And God says, in my kingdom, you want blessings? Humble yourself. In my kingdom, you want rewards from me? Serve others. Because I have a whole different view of what is great than what this world says is great and how this world tries to achieve greatness and the reason this world seeks greatness. All those things are very different from a godly perspective. Mark 10, 45 tells us this. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus is the greatest person to ever live. And he showed what godly greatness looks like in coming to serve and give his life for others and not to be served. So when it comes to greatness, we need to have a godly perspective, not a worldly perspective. We need to see serving others as something great, not as something that is beneath us. And so let's learn what, from what Jesus knew and from what Jesus did and from what Jesus taught his disciples about what godly greatness is, and actually apply it to our life, and be those who humble ourselves and serve others. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the example of Jesus Christ, the powerful example that we see in his life, the example that he set for not only the disciples, but for all of us who follow him. And Lord, we recognize that what Jesus did is so difficult. It's actually impossible for us in our own ability and our own strength and our own power to accomplish. But yet you've given us the power of the spirit of God. He dwells in us. We know the truth of scripture that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And so we ask this morning that you would help us be those who truly humble ourselves and serve others that we would follow the example of Jesus, that we would recognize what true greatness in your eyes is like. That we would really just distance ourselves from the greatness of the world, from the pursuit of that, from the desire of that, and we would really focus ourselves on pursuing greatness that blesses you, greatness that you define and that we can follow. And we just ask that you would help us do that, in our life, with our relationships, with others, that we truly would humble ourselves and serve them and not think anything beneath us, but do as you did. Give our life to serve others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.